Welcome everyone to Why Rising Rates Will Be Good for Dividend-Focused Stock Investors. It's episode 12 of Keep Calm and Carry On Investing. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. From my perspective, episode 5 on truth and clarity is the most important in the series. Philosophy first, then everything else falls into place. That's my view of the world. Most listeners, being of a more practical nature, will probably disagree with me. And to judge by the number of questions I've received over the past nearly 20 years overseeing dividend-focused portfolios, investors view neither truth nor clarity as the driving force of returns. Instead, they view interest rates as the decisive factor in investment outcomes. Even business operations, cash flows, and robust dividend growth fall short in the perception of what drives returns and the ultimate utility of high dividend-paying securities. And so, this episode... It's about interest rates. You can read a great deal in your uh, textbooks or on the uh, internet about interest rates and their relation to investment returns. Popular media is full of folks discussing their direction and their implications. There are lots of angles. That's why there is so much confusion in regard to interest rates and equities. The volume of noise is very loud. In this episode, I hope I can simplify matters for you and tone it all down to a less deafening level. In that spirit, let's start with, first, what interest rates are supposed to represent. Second, we'll then shift to what they really are used for in the marketplace. And third and finally, why now might be an excellent time to adopt an income-oriented approach to investing despite the prospect of rising rates. Before we get into the weeds, however, let me summarize the main and singular point about interest rates and equities, particularly uh, dividend-paying stocks. And that is, for all the complexity that attends looking at interest rates, the easiest way to view them is as a measure of prospective risk. Higher rates signal higher risk. Lower rates signal lower future risk. Risk here has a number of definitions, which we'll get to later. For now, just take risk as risk. The context is important. For the past 40 years, 4-0, this signal and measure of risk has been steadily declining. It's quite extraordinary and uh, has clearly been a tailwind for high-risk equities, not to mention bonds in general. Now that that 40-year journey looks like it has come to an end, the relative investment attraction should shift back to where it has been absent those decades, especially the past five or so years. Those underappreciated, overlooked, dividend-paying and dividend-increasing companies that used to constitute the majority of the stock market and are now uh, but a small minority. The standard wisdom, of course, is the opposite. The rising rates will hurt income-oriented equities. No promises, but I think that the standard wisdom will be dramatically wrong. And whether I'm right or wrong, the analysis on today's episode should give you some food for thought as you consider what might happen as rates stop going down or even begin a secular increase. Now let's get back to the details. I want to start with the 10-year Treasury note. Over the past few decades, it has become the benchmark interest rate that drives the equity markets. It wasn't always so, but it is now. And what is necessary to understand about the 10-year Treasury note is that it is carrying a great deal of weight, more than it can handle, in my opinion. First, it is the rate that the U.S. government pays to borrow money for, you guessed it, 10 years. In that regard, the interest rate is driven by supply and demand, as is any other item on a mostly open market. Part of the supply-demand equation is a potentially tricky present value exercise because the borrower is in it for 10 years, as is the lender. Both have a stake in the rate of inflation that will occur during that 10-year period. 
those inflation expectations naturally fit into the equation. Uh, if lenders think inflation will be high, they will uh, want a higher return. If they think inflation will decline or just say stay low, lenders will be, be content with a lower coupon. So the 10-year also harbors inflation expectations in addition to its basic funding function for the U.S. government. The Federal Reserve Board also has a say. It doesn't directly control the 10-year, but it does set very short-term lending rates to banks and what banks charge to lend to one another. As most of you know, those rates have been uh, near zero for some time. Those very low base rates then lead up to longer borrowing tenures for the Treasury, to te two years, five years, 10 years, and even 30 years. To summarize about the 10-year, we have supply and demand, inflation expectations, and the actions of a central bank. So far, so good. Here's where it begins to get tricky. The Fed has a dual mandate, formally since 1977 and informally since the end of World War II. That mandate is to maintain credit conditions and money supply sufficient to support full employment levels, as high as can be uh, considered practical, as well as to maintain moderate, that is low, levels of inflation. That dual mandate is a heavy burden. The Fed cannot employ anyone directly in the economy. It cannot build a bridge. It cannot break ground on a school. It cannot invest in a plant. There are no shovels or pickaxes in the Fed's possession. It just adjusts short-term interest rates and sets the capital requirements for banks in an effort to influence their levels of lending. From my perspective, the Fed's mandate in regard to inflation is not entirely unreasonable. It has some relevant tools. But making the Fed responsible for employment levels without it actually having a real economy footprint is a bridge too far. The last 70 years of U.S. economic history has shown that. The Fed is just too far removed from the individual or aggregate hiring decision. That second mandate is also, of course, a political football, a way for politicians to shift responsibility from the legislative or executive branches to an unelected entity that, again, has no budget, no building plans, no backhoes, no cranes, no direct tools to affect employment. The consequence is, the, is that the Fed can distort interest rates in pursuit of these other goals, but in doing so, they can really mangle the real signaling role of the 10-year note in regard to risk. As part of the Fed's response to the two great crises of the past 15 years, the GFC and COVID, it has been in the habit of directly buying government securities, including the 10-year, to keep rates low and inject money into the economy. There is no doubt that the past almost 15 years of this on-again, off-again activity by the Fed has had that distortionary effect. That's not good. If that weren't bad enough, the expectations in regard to the Fed uh, recently got worse. Lots of politicians are now looking to the Fed to address uh, social inequality. Whatever your views of these new mandates, the Federal Reserve Board will be as ineffective in addressing issues of inequality as it has been in managing that other goal for which it is not designed but it does add another facet to the Fed's distortion of investment risk. Now, I digress by talking Fed politics, but that is the point, how confusing and many are the inputs to the interest rate discussion. It's not that surprising with this many cooks in the kitchen and this many expectations, but wait, there's more. If you order before midnight tonight, in addition to a Ginzu knife, you also get an academic overlay. With a lot already riding on it, academic finance has added another facet to the complexity of the 10-year. The definition of risk in modern finance is based on the notion of a risk-free rate. For equities, that risk-free rate has come to be viewed generally as the U.S. 10-year because the U.S. supposedly is unlikely to default on its debt. 
When you invest in something other than the U.S. Treasury note, you are taking incremental risk of failure. The equity risk premium, therefore, is an expected amount of return above and beyond the return on the 10-year to compensate the investor for that incremental risk. Add the two figures together and you get an expected rate of return, or to use another term, a discount rate for stocks. So as the 10-year moves up and down, the math of owning equities is expected to change as well. That's why if you watch the financial media, you will see them look after the jobs number or the CPI or the GDP figures or a Fed statement or after pretty much anything else that's newsworthy. Financial media will immediately cut to how the 10-year treasury is trading. Suffice it to say here then that the uh, 10-year treasury camel already has a full load of straw on its back. It is the borrowing rate for the government. It is an expectation of inflation. It is a so-called risk-free rate. It is at the heart of all discount rate exercises for equities. It is all of the above. All of these expectations are on one little number, currently around 1.6%, near the very bottom of its historical range. And so low indeed that if you consider the real rate for treasuries after taking into account inflation levels, which albeit have been modest over the past decade, the real rate on the 10-year has been essentially, if not actually, zero or even negative. It's hard to get good risk signals from a tool that is now such a Frankenstein's monster. And remember, lots of people have an interest in this number, not just investors, but business people and politicians and lobbyists and activists wanting to keep the number either down or up depending on their point of view. To sum it all up, the base rate for equities is unusually low and I would argue distorted. And that in turn creates lots of incremental danger for investors. But it also creates opportunities if the 10-year is misrepresenting the outlook for any of its many missions. Let's uh, now turn from what interest rates are supposed to represent to how this confusing figure stands directly in regard to stocks and their valuation, particularly in regard to the dividend-paying equities uh, that are the topic of this overall podcast series. Here, too, the situation is clear as mud, uh, hence this episode. First and perhaps least important, the 10-year at a given rate and all the fixed income instruments with yields that are priced off the government's set of rates. These constitute potential competitive sources of income for investors compared to other income-generating assets, such as dividend-paying stocks or real estate or ongoing enterprises. In regard to high dividend-paying stocks, however, this competition ain't what it used to be decades ago when all large U.S. stocks had material dividends. Now, the leading lights of the market are share price only, no income. So far fewer investors now compare the stock market in aggregate to the bond market and compare yields. There are still plenty of individual stocks, however, that offer up yields that are sufficient to be considered in the competitive set with fixed income. That's my day job, by the way. And for those dividend-paying stocks, when rates do rise, their relative attraction supposedly declines. Remember that the comparison is imperfect. Stock dividends are not guarantees. They generally increase over time but can be cut and share prices are usually more volatile than the movements in bond prices. But in the overall asset allocation process between bonds and dividend-paying stocks, some degree of comparison is appropriate, and it happens every day in the marketplace. Although the 10-year yields only 1.5%, and a portfolio of high-quality bonds can yield 25 maybe 3%, a portfolio of high-quality dividend-paying equities can yield 4% or more and offer the prospect of income growth, not just a flat income stream. 
So net-net, there is not much competition from rising rates to a portfolio of high-dividend-paying equities, at least for now. Should the 10-year come to yield 3% or 4% or 5% and high-quality bonds yield even more, then fixed-income securities would once again be considered reasonable alternatives to stocks yielding the same amount. They would be reasonable sources of income the way they have not been for a number of years. That's all other factors being held equal, but we're nowhere near that point. Given that yields are so low, one might reasonably ask where grandma and grandpa have been getting income the past decade or so. Easy. They bought stocks and sold them when they needed the money. Rather than clipping coupons, Americans have gotten used to harvesting capital gains. There's nothing wrong with that in a rising stock market. But as I've argued elsewhere on my website and plan as the topic of the next podcast episode, a capital gain is profoundly different from a dividend payment. Both require a good decision-making, but one requires timing and a lot of action. The other does not. Suffice it to say here, moderately rising rates do not yet pose a material challenge to the attraction of high dividend-paying stocks. Equally unimportant is the implication of rising rates for the actual operations of dividend-paying companies. Rising rates on their own, particularly near-term moves or increases that just get us back to more normal levels, simply have little to no bearing on the cash generation of most high-quality dividend-paying companies. Yes, rising rates may have a modest impact on working capital and other real-world business activities, but they're limited in scope and remain far less important to a company's cash generation than higher-order changes in uh, sales or margins. Of course, with rates rising, the cost of long-term debt goes up. But here, too, the change will be slow, and it will show up on the income statement over many years as existing debt comes due and gets refinanced at higher rates. Keep in mind that investment-grade companies currently refinancing 5- or 10-year term paper are generally still doing so at lower rates than when the debt was issued. That is, debt refinancing can still constitute a modest income statement tailwind for debt-capitalized companies. That will come to an end soon, but let's be clear that having rates return to more typical levels is in no way an operational issue for most large, uh, high-quality dividend-paying companies. I do need to acknowledge that inflation, uh, with which rates are supposed to move up in tandem, is more impactful on company operations. We're currently seeing input and labor cost inflation move up sharply with the global economic restart. That has influenced the operational results of many corporations. Gross margins are under pressure. But the numbers are baby figures compared to the proper inflation of the 1970s and 80s. Should rates and inflation return to those very high levels, the story does change. Extremely high rates can be disruptive to businesses, especially those without strong pricing power. But we are, again, nowhere near those levels. And even those individuals expecting inflation to make a comeback and rates with them are not forecasting or realistically expecting disruptive levels. The disinflationary or even deflationary pressures in the global economy that have existed for decades have not suddenly reversed. All that being said, rising interest rates and or genuine inflation can and will eventually have a dampening effect on the overall level of economic activity particularly for business models that are dependent on cheap credit for their everyday activities. While that is a valid concern in the stock market as a discounting mechanism takes that and other concerns into account, the simple trader's mantra, rates up, dividend-paying stocks down, is absurd when considered from a distributable cash flow or business perspective. If some businesses uh, begin to actually struggle because the U.S. Treasury 
10-year Treasury goes to 2% or 3% from its current 1.5% level, one should ask how robust the business model was to begin with. We won't even deal with the highly leveraged companies whose whole existence was predicated on the availability of super cheap money. They will undoubtedly struggle in an existential way in a rising rate environment. So to summarize, rates rising from the current ultra-low levels do not pose a material competitive threat to high dividend paying companies, nor do they represent a genuine business disruption threat. This relative neutrality disappears in favor of dividend paying stocks when we consider risk and actual valuation metrics in a rising rate environment. I want to state this boldly. Rising rate environment off the ultra low rates that we have seen for the past five years is a positive for the outlook of high dividend paying companies. That's the key point of this podcast. Let me explain. As we discussed earlier, interest rates are central to the discounting formulas used to value equities. Recall from your Finance 101 class that all valuation exercises have at their heart a discounted cash flow or discounted dividend foundation. This method of valuation is often ignored in the marketplace by traders, but it's there all the same. And lower interest rates mean a lower overall discount rate to companies that have distributable cash flows or to earnings for those that don't have or don't want to distribute their cash flows. Either way, low is sort of always better from a valuation perspective. So goes the standard wisdom. And it is behind the valuation of your favorite unicorn or SPAC or electronic vehicle company. Although those uh, entities have no or minimal earnings at present, they are expected to grow so rapidly, so, so rapidly, and become so profitable over the forecast period that when those cash flows are discounted back to the present time at a very low discount rate, you get the eye-popping valuations that now adorn certain portions of the U.S. stock market. The low interest rates are what make the math work. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that interest rates, having come down for 40 years, has created a highly tolerant environment for exactly those types of companies and valuations. The ultra-low discount rates of the past five years or so in particular have supported valuations reminiscent of the dot-com bubble, at least for certain sections of the market. That's why the move up in uh, rates from 60 basis points to 160 basis points over the past year or so has so rattled the growth stocks. Some investors might think that the party is coming to an end. Uh, More generally, having rates get to more normal levels and getting investors to think about risk by using more reasonable risk rates, not ones based on an ultra-low risk-free rate, will even the valuation scales. Lesser companies that have benefited from ultra-low rates will face a distinct valuation challenge from the more traditional cash flow-generating companies that have been largely overlooked for the past five years. But what, you might reasonably ask, about the real-world impact on the share prices of the dividend-paying companies in a rising rate environment? Well, for all of my pontificating, many market participants still view them as bond proxies. When rates rise, Traders justify lower bids for dividend-paying stocks by arguing that those stocks are like bonds and should adjust downward when rates move up. For a stock whose dividend itself is flat and does not have the prospect of rising anytime soon, frankly, the logic is fairly close to that of uh, valuing a bond. But for the vast majority of dividend-paying companies on the stock market, the logic is not the same. One ordinarily owns these types of stocks for their increasing dividends, not a flat payment stream. Stocks represent an ownership stake in the underlying business and the opportunity to grow along with it. 
As sales and profits increase, so too do the dividends, all the things kept equal. Interest rates, among other functions, are a reflection of inflation and economic growth expectations. If rates move up, it is because inflation or GDP or both are gaining or are expected too soon. The macroeconomic level, and for most large companies operating at that macroeconomic level, that means nominal sales and nominal profits and nominal dividends will also be moving up. There's a bit of cart and horse here, and there can be lags, but rising rates should generally be met with rising growth in dividend payments. In short, dividend-paying stocks are not bond proxies and should not be treated as such. If the profit and dividend growth rate can keep up, then there is no reason why the net present value or the fair price of dividend-paying equities should suffer, suffer along with their flat payment bond cousins. So the knee-jerk reaction, sell the dividend payers in a rising rate environment, creates a nice, if modest, investment opportunity. If share prices for a basket of dividend-oriented equities drops, say 5% due to an increase in the 10-year, that is essentially no impact on the ability of those companies to pay and increase their dividends in the future, then the savvy investor with either new cash to invest or dividends to reinvest gets the same companies and the same income stream for 5% less in cost. That translates to a 5% increase in yield. More generally, investment strategies based on a tangible component of return cash offer that unique benefit. A temporary drop in the share price increases the expectable cash return by the same amount from that point on as reflected in the higher yield. So if uh, high-paying dividend stocks can... Uh, hold their own against bond portfolios in a rising rate environment, what about versus other stocks, particularly ones with strong growth outlooks? As in the case with bonds, so too in the case with non-dividend paying stocks, the timing of cash flow really matters. One way to measure that timing is called duration, and it's uh, used to determine the sensitivity of a bond or portfolio of them to a change in interest rates. The underlying concept of duration was uh, created in 1938 by Canadian economist Frederick Macaulay. His formula, now known as Macaulay Duration, comes up with the length of time a bond investor has to wait to receive the net present value of the cash flows from the bond or portfolio of them. It's a measure of time. The higher the number, the longer it takes to, quote, get your money back, end quote. When you uh, then layer in a change in interest rates used to discount those cash flows and therefore change your payback period, you have a back-of-the-envelope tool to measure the change in the proper price of a bond or portfolio of them. The higher the duration, the greater the impact of an interest rate change on the bond price because there's more time for the discounting process to impact the present value of the cash flows. The lower the duration, the less the window of opportunity for a change in interest rates to have on the price. If we assume that interest rates are likely to rise over an investment time horizon, and we naively keep all other factors and considerations equal, investors would prefer a portfolio with a lower duration rather than a higher one. The rising rates would, in theory, do less damage to the price of the lower duration portfolio. In regard to equities, the logic is roughly the same. Although typical, typical stock market investors couldn't care less about cash flows these days as they search for the next unicorn, I have long advocated and continue to support managing and measuring equity portfolios from the perspective of distributable cash flows. In that case, 
applying duration analysis constitutes an additional tool to see how equity portfolios compare to one another in a rising rate environment. Now, in a traditional duration calculation, most of the variables are fixed. You know the current price of the bond, the amount of the coupons, the principal, the current interest rate, etc. Change the interest rate and calculate. For equities, the math is a lot harder. Equity coupons, the dividends, generally grow over time, so you need to calculate that into the equation. And then there is the matter of the terminal value. With simple bonds, you have a date of maturity when your principal is returned. That principal value gets discounted back to the present time. For equities, there is no date of maturity. So either you calculate the duration of the income stream out into perpetuity, which is tricky, or you come up with a terminal value of the stock sometime out and discount it back to the present time, which is trickier. Finally, there is the matter of the right discount rate to use. The formulas get even messier because of the interplay of the variables. For instance, there's a presumed to be some correlation between growth and inflation, particularly in a nominal price environment. That is, you pay for your soft drink and your monthly phone bill in nominal, not inflation-adjusted dollars, and the dividends that you get from your portfolio are also in nominal dollars. So some of the change in the growth rate of those distributions and the discount rate used in the duration calculation would be related to one another. The question is, uh, by how much are they related? The number and interplay of variables is such that there is no standard, widely accepted, straightforward way to calculate the duration of equities. And then there are some really tough questions. For instance, what about a rise in real rates, those not directly related to changes in inflation? If rates rise without inflationary pressures, a real possibility if, possi if policymakers try to get rates back to normal levels after a decade of quantitative easing, you have yet another factor to deal with, and one with perhaps the greatest potential impact on stock prices. The traditional discount rate for equity cash flows uh, is also based off the 10-year risk-free rate with an additional equity risk premium that has been around 5% nominal in recent decades. If you inject real risk back into the equation, either via the risk-free rate or via a higher equity risk premium, it doesn't really matter, you open up a whole new series of outcomes. Net-net, I'll be the first to admit, this is not a common way or a simple way of viewing equities or a precise way to value them, but it remains useful at the broadest level. Even without doing all the math, certain concepts stand out. First, a stock portfolio offering current material cash flows dividends will necessarily have a lower duration than one with no or low current cash flows. It's for the simple reason that there are upfront payments which get reduced less by an increase in rates. Think about that when you consider the standard notion that growth stocks will do better in a rising rate environment because they can keep up with inflation better. Maybe yes, maybe no. But without an income stream or just a minimal one that rises along with the inflation, the math of duration suggests otherwise. On my website, I've uh, presented the simple duration math under three scenarios. The first is the U.S. stock market as represented by the S&P 500 index with its paltry 1.5% cash yield. Its duration under a variety of growth scenarios is in the 70-year range, 7-0. That's long and highly subject to the vicissitudes of interest rate changes. On the other hand, a portfolio with a yield of 4.5% has a duration of about 24 years. The so-called dividend growth market, which occupies a lot of retail shelf space, has a duration around 36 years when the yield is 3%. So that's the range of weighted payback periods in case rates start to move. 
Remember, this is not a tool to forecast share price changes. It is just the payback period. The price sensitivity is a matter for the market to decide. But you can be sure that rising weights will take their pound of flesh out of all of those darlings that have been dominating the market for the past five years. If uh, duration is a, a bit too complex, there are simpler ways to understand the benefits of getting paid up front in a rising rate environment. In the Strategic Dividend Investor from 2011, I compared the income stream from a portfolio yielding 5% and growing the dividend at a rate of 5% annually to a, an income stream that, in contrast, yields 2% but is growing the distributions at a rate of 8% per year. Both portfolios have the same expected annual total return of 10%. But despite the higher growth rate of the 2 plus 8 portfolio, it takes a whopping 33 years for the annual income of that portfolio to equal the annual payments of the more conservative 5 plus 5 portfolio. This is not a duration calculation, but just a common sense glimpse at cash flow management. And it should not come as a surprise that a rise in the discount rate will have a far, far greater impact on the growth portfolio than on the one offering the higher current cash distribution. Defenders of the low or no cash flow approach are put in a tricky position if they want to pay even nominal abeisance to the discounted cash flow framework, which still underpins most valuation exercises on Wall Street, even for non-dividend paying companies. Their only real answer is that once their distributable cash flow free companies have grown to a certain scale and profitability, they will begin to make distributions of such size and growth rates as to justify the many years, upfront years, of no or low payments. In Getting Back to Business from 2018, I used the example of a leading online retailer whose cash distributions may start in a year, in a decade, or never. You can probably guess the company. The math of duration, however, is unequivocal. Those long-deferred payments, no matter how much is promised, will be worth a lot less today if discount rates move up and especially if real risk rates increase materially. So I'm going against the crowd here, but the logic of a discounting mechanism is neither popular nor unpopular. It just is. Cash is cash, and business investors with a cash sensibility and the ability to see through near-term share price moves can turn the current mania about rising rates into an opportunity. Obviously, holders of non-cash flow securities and near-term traders care not a whit about these calculations, at least for now. We will see if that continues if real risk re-enters the investment equation more than a decade after it was abolished by central banking authorities. For those investors who do care about cash flows, there are ways to at least partially immunize their equity portfolios against the prospect of rising rates, whether due to inflation or the addition of real risk. They include one where you can tap into cash flows now rather than in the future. That means a higher rather than a lower current yield, as high as can be had while still maintaining a rising high-quality income stream able to offset inflation. Second, own companies with as much pricing power as possible, again, to offset the impact of inflation. This can turn out to be a challenge, as the best dividend payers are in the current environment in the old economy, where pricing power can be hard to come by. That's where active management and fundamental analysis come in. And finally, third, be very careful about your exposure to rising real rates. That is the return of genuine investment risk. If rates move up more than inflation, it will likely be tough on the at-risk securities. Make sure you are aware of which investments, highly cyclical, highly leveraged, thin business models, et cetera, 
fall into that category and monitor them closely. If real risk re-enters the investment calculus after a decade-long hiatus, you will want to lean toward less cyclical, well-capitalized businesses. So as I wrap it up here, you might be asking whether I am, in fact, forecasting an increase in rates, flat rates, or a continuation of the 40-year decline. I've quite intentionally not tried to answer that question for the simple reason that I don't know. Nobody does. Everybody's guessing. Your guess is as good as theirs. Instead, my goal has been to clarify how interest rates fit into the stock market equation, particularly if real rates do stop their 40-year decline. If those rates do rise materially, it's very likely the stock market will struggle as a result, but not equally. Cash-generative and cash-distributive businesses will, at a minimum, struggle less, if not actually prosper, vis-a-vis the cashless darlings that currently dominate the market. You heard it here first. That's it for now. Thank you for joining me on Keep Calm and Carry On. I hope this episode has been of use to you. The next one will take on an equally controversial issue, comparing and contrasting taking capital gains versus seeking dividend payments. I hope you'll join me for that review. Until then, goodbye.